Glad you all are here with us. Uh, as Mia said, my name is Jonathan. I'm Jonathan Miller, one of the two co-lead pastors here at Mosaic. If you're new or uh, we haven't met yet, um, hello. Say hi afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, the other co-lead pastor, uh, for those of you that uh, are familiar, is Kyle Kilo, and they are on sabbatical. This is the they're going into their second week now uh, coming up. We got to hang out yesterday, and I laughed and thought it was funny because, like, he and I, like, didn't really talk because we weren't going to talk about church stuff. And so I was like, hey, Kyle. And he's like, hey. I was like, how's it going? He's like, good. And then that was kind of it because we were trying really hard not to talk about church stuff, and that's usually all me and Kyle talk about. And so then we talked about, like, baseball and things like that, which we also talk about. But uh, it it was good. They're doing well. And so uh, we're continuing to pray for them. And have them on your heart and your mind as they rest and their family is wonderful. It was Max's birthday and so we hung out with them. Um, But it was great. So I just wanted to say that and say that they're doing awesome. Be praying for them. They're going to the beach this week to hang out as a family, uh, just them. And so uh, keep them in your heart and in your mind this week and continue to pray over them. We're continuing in Exodus. And I'm glad that Mia asked you guys to stand as we read the scriptures. That's something we do here at Mosaic, not every single time, but most of the time, a lot of times we do that. And the reason we stand as we have the text read, it is not that we think that there is something magical about standing. There's not something that we think that this book, uh, you know, like there's some weird people have some interesting opinions about what the Bible is from time to time. Um, And it is not that we are giving it reverence like that, right? Like we we are not... uh, Bibliist or, or whatever, like we're Christians, we follow Jesus, uh, and that we believe that the text and the word is sacred, and we submit ourselves to it in such a way because it, we believe that it is the best thing that we have that reveals God to us. We are people of the book. We believe it is authoritative at Mosaic, and we submit ourselves to what we find in it. But it's interesting, right? Like, what, what does that always mean when we start to get into some of these things? And so, uh, but what we do is we stand as the text is read to remind ourselves that this thing is different. This is not some book that we're just reading, you know, throughout the week or whatever. Um, It's not just a wise kind of uh, a guide to us. And there's all these things that go around. What is scripture? How do we find ourselves in it? Like, and what is it supposed to be doing with us? How do we approach it? And in the section that we are in in Exodus, this is a very like kind of live discussion. We're getting into what is really kind of seen as the laws of the people of God. We're getting into this part of the story and the narrative where we find ourselves hearing some things that, as we talked about last week, feel really archaic and kind of weird. And then I said last week, like, they feel archaic because they actually literally are archaic. Like this is a context and a people and a group that comes from a space that is foreign to us. It is written in a language that is literally foreign to us, right? Like this isn't English. It was ancient, ancient Hebrew. Even if you can speak Hebrew in Israel now, you would have a hard time reading the Old Testament in its original context unless you study and learn ancient Hebrew. Like it is a different language. And so when we get to the laws... It can feel a little weird. I made this joke last week, and I'll make it again. Like, this is the point when you're trying to read the Bible straight through that you start to kind of go, wait a minute, what? Like, and you lose a little steam. You slow down a little bit because you're, you're in a section that maybe doesn't necessarily make sense. The narratives, the stories, they're interesting, they're exciting. The laws, not so much. 
And so last week, we preached through, or, or we talked through uh, Exodus 19 through 24. And the text we read came from Exodus 19. And what we really focused on was looking at this chunk of passage, 19 through 24, kind of as, as one set of uh, an idea. And we focused on this theme or this idea of being tested by God, that the people of God were being tested by him. And this is what has been happening throughout the wilderness, that they're being tested to trust and to obey, to hear. That's a good word. And I really like that word as we move in to start to talk about the laws in a different kind of way, is it's not just obedience as we kind of think of it as we sort of want to take this and parse it out and make it moral, ethic, or law. These codes of like that maybe we look up and like doubt, all the thou shalt nots and thou shalt, right? And so there's this Hebrew word, Shema, listen, hear, O Israel. And it's asking them to not just obey what they're hearing from God, but they're asking to like turn and attune themselves to and to posture themselves before God and what he's saying to them, to hear who God is and what's happening. And so last week we looked at 19 through 24, and I would really kind of like call that part one, and this is part two, because we're going to stay, obviously, in 19 through 24 and look at it from a different angle. So last week we really pushed this idea of being tested and that what God is asking of us is to hear his word, to hear him and what he's speaking, and to trust and obey and to give ourselves to him in that kind of way. And we finished in 24 and talking about Moses going up on the mountain, what appeared to be like death. And we said that sometimes this trusting, this asking that God is doing of us, can feel like death. It can feel painful, it can feel scary, it can feel overwhelming. I do want to say this. I took an interpretation last week, and I preached for a very long time, and so you guys can be glad that I didn't go into all these details, and I'll try to do it quickly here. But last week in that passage... I took an interpretation of what we were seeing in 19 and 20 in this kind of interplay between Moses going up and down the mountain and it being a flash forward and flash back and that God tested the people of Israel by asking them to purify themselves and to come up the mountain. And I said last week, and this is because of scholars that I trust and that I agree with and I think you can see it in the text and I think it fits in the narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that what they were doing is that they failed the test and that they didn't go up the mountain. There, I just want to say this because I think this is, uh, again, talking about what Scripture is and to acknowledge that there are other interpretations of that passage. And, and some probably fit, if you're just reading 19 through 24, it may feel a little less confusing if you read it in a slightly different interpretation. And that interpretation is that the people of God weren't supposed to go up the mountain, that they passed the and that they sent Moses up as their representative. Now that feels like two totally different interpretations, and I understand that. And what I want to say is that I think the end result of what we're getting out of it can remain the same. And oftentimes as we approach Scripture, that, that is what I think is important. It is okay to read a text and to arrive to different conclusions. That's going to happen. There are things we're going to disagree on because we're approaching this and we're seeing it in a light and in a way that isn't like natural to us. There's things that we're kind of going like, that was a Hebrew, was there something else going on? Was there something that, that was happening there? And there are times where we can disagree on the interpretation of a text, but there is something about it that we're supposed to draw out of it 
and hold on to that I think has to remain true to all of us, that, that fits this narratival art from Genesis to Revelation that is true and that is good and that is right. Now, why would I say all that other than just like trying to provide some information? Because as you start to approach the laws, this is a live conversation. As you start to look at the laws of the Israelite people and the people of God, there are things and there are points where you kind of look at this and you have to acknowledge that we don't understand what all is going on in some of these spaces. But the important thing and the thing that we have to remember to do is to read this in some sort of context or way that allows us to draw out or glean the beauty of who God is. And that is what scripture is going to do. It's going to point us to who Jesus is, his character, his nature, his beauty, God's character, God's nature, and allow us to understand something about the wisdom and insight in like what we are supposed to do and to understand our role and our place in that context, that we submit ourselves to that beauty and to that wisdom, and we say to that that we will give our lives to who this God is. And so sometimes we will disagree, sometimes we won't have all the answers, and that's okay if we can agree and find a space that like what we're seeing is a God that is full of beauty, a full of grace, full of wisdom, insight, all this stuff. If you have read the Bible and you have followed along with it, you will know that what you are about to start reading, maybe not so much in Exodus, there's some weird stuff here a little bit. But you start getting into Leviticus, and you may be asking yourself, yeah, 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 Jonathan, I hear you, but like I, some of these 613 laws or commands that we see in these first five books of the Bible don't necessarily uh, naturally dwell like, like up within my person and my being, the desire to pursue and see the beauty of God in all of this. Because some of those laws and rules are really weird. And so maybe it's just strange. And some of them seem offensive to our Western and modern minds almost. Like, like that is why would you, what? Like, you don't want to do that. So let's talk about that for a second. Like, why these laws? And so that's our part two. We're going to look at Because this is the way the laws function. So if last week was understanding that what God's asking of us, this commitment, then this week is kind of saying this is God's response when we commit to those laws. So the way the laws in Scripture work and the way that these commands seem to play themselves out is this cycle. And I talked about this a little bit last week as well. What you see is God provides a way for his people. He creates something, he places them in a space and a time, and he interacts with them in that space and time that they find themselves. And he meets them there, and he says to them, I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to trust me and to know that I am good. And they tend to respond and say, okay, we'll do it. And then what he does is he says, okay, these are the things that you sort of have to do to follow along. To, to do the thing that I'm asking you to be in the re relationship that I want to be in with you, you have to do these sort of things. And then the relationship will work like it's supposed to. Now, I want to get something clear here in the garden, in the case of Abraham, in Exodus now with the people at Mount Sinai. Never does God require them to follow the law before he will be in relationship with them. A fun way of saying this that I love is that the indicative must precede the imperative. If you were terrible at English, so was I, and I learned what that meant when I was in my late 20s. That means that 
Now, if you're good at English, you're like, that's embarrassing, bro. Like, you should totally know what the indicative and the imperative is. It means that which you are, the, the, the being, the existence, it precedes the commands to follow these laws. So God comes to his people and he says, I will be in relationship with you. Will you be in relationship with me? And they say yes. And he says, okay, I will pursue that. I will continue to allow that to be the case. If you want this relationship to work well, there are some rules that you are going to need to follow. He does not ever once say to the people of God, you must follow all of these rules before I will be in relationship with you. The rules and the commands always follow God's like seeking out and his intention to be in relationship with the people. They always follow God's design to restore and to call back the people to himself before he will look at them and say, you have to live a certain way. So when we think about these as laws, as we think about these as commands, I think it would be better for us to not think of them so much as like moral demands on our behavior and our character, but these specifically, what we're reading in Exodus and what we will read if you would continue reading throughout the Old Testament in the total of 613 that you will see. We get 52 right here in these five chapters, or well, through the rest of Exodus. We, we start with 10. They're kind of the, the main ones. And then you see 613 more. They're better thought of, I think, as a way of thinking of what you see at a wedding ceremony. A vow and a promise between two people that are agreeing to enter into relationship with one another. And they are saying, if you do this, this is my promise to you on this day. This is my promise to you. I will love you in this kind of way. I will live in this kind of way in order that our relationship will be what it's supposed to be. That we will be able to be like mutually beneficial to one another and, and to love one another and to care for one another. And also that our relationship will serve its purpose that it's supposed to serve. Marriage serves this beautiful purpose in the grand design of humanity as believers and followers of Jesus. As this like really great way of allowing us to see here in this temporal moment what the covenant between us and God is supposed to be like. And so they give these vows. Everybody here has probably been to a wedding. If not, you've at least seen a movie with a wedding. You have an idea of what happens at weddings. People say, I do. And then they answer the, these things. And then they say back to each other, like, I'll love you in this way. And some are really sappy and romantic, and they're beautiful and poetic. And if you've been to a lot of weddings and you've been married for more than five years, you're like, you guys are so naive. It's wonderful. And it kind of like inspires some naivety in, in yourself, and you kind of go back to that space. But you're like, you won't do any of this. You, like, it just, it's not going to work like that. But that's cute that you think you can say that. And sometimes they're really simple and basic, and you still know that in that moment that they are going to fail at following those vows at times. That they're not always going to keep to it perfectly. But none of us would walk away from that moment and say, well, this whole marriage is negated, and it's pointless, and we don't need to be here, and, like, why, why are they doing this? No, we know it because you're saying... That is what they're attempting to do, and in their failure, they will come to one another, and there will be grace, and there will be mercy, and they will grow closer together as they fail. And sometimes what happens, if you've been married for very long, what you have to do is you have to acknowledge those failures, and then you will do this thing where you sort of look at one another, and if you've been married for uh, any length of time and you haven't done this, I suggest you do this. Get with your spouse and look at them and be like, hey, how do I love you well? How do I not love you well? 
ask these questions and sit down with one another. And then, like, it, what's really fun is to take some pieces of paper. I don't know. This is free. I'm telling you guys this. Uh, <laughs> this was not planned. So w- what is really beneficial is to take those things and to, and to even write it down and kind of separate for, like, 24 hours and come back. Because what is mind-blowingly uh, wonderful about this whole process when Anna and I did it is all the ways that I felt really loved were all the ways that I thought I loved her well. And all the ways that she felt really loved were all the ways that she thought she loved me well. And they didn't line up at all. Right? There's these little subtle ways of like you're going, oh my gosh, I was doing that because I thought you wanted me to do it. Anyway, we won't belabor the point. So they get, you get together. And it's not that your vows to one another change. It's that as you've been together longer, they make more sense. And you understand them better than you could on that day that you first entered into relationship with one another. Also... In the same way that it is true, whenever you are in a store or you are somewhere where you ask yourself, why would anyone need to put up a sign that says something that obvious and ridiculous? It's because someone broke that rule and doesn't know that you cannot do that thing. In marriage, it's the same way. Like, as you get together, there are times where you have to, like, kind of articulate, like, hey, I didn't know I needed to make this clear like, I didn't know that you, I needed to articulate that I, I would like for you to do this thing. If you have roommates, if you have friends, you understand this. If you've been in a relationship for a long time, there are things that seem obvious to you that you have to, like, break down and say, hey, I, I need you to do this differently. This is the pattern of the law that you will see. So what is happening as you see this text and as you enter into it is not that God is entering down and going like, these are the only commands that the people of God are supposed to live by. We, uh, from history and understanding uh, all this stuff, we know that there are more than 613 laws that the Jewish people lived by. We also know by reading this, and you don't have to be a biblical scholar or a literary genius to read this text and understand that this is not reading like the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or if yeah, Alex Mason would give us one of his law books. Like, this would read differently than that. So then you have to begin to ask yourself, well, what is exactly happening here, and why have these codes and these laws been preserved in such a way that we now have them? And I'm indebted here to a guy named Selhammer and it's a book called The Pentateuch as Narrative. And what he wants to say is happening is that there's a story being told, starting in Exodus, well, starting in Genesis, obviously, but there's this narrative, but the laws and the way they're introduced is it's a story being told to us. And so there's a, these are a selection of laws. It's not all of the laws. It's not uh, the ones that, like, you know, well, these were the ones that we're supposed to carry forward and that those living in Birmingham, Alabama in the 21st century are supposed to still follow. It's not that. It's a story is being told. And the story is this cycle of what you see. And that is that God enters into the story of humanity and creation. He meets his people. He chooses to dwell among them and interact with them on their t- like in their space and time, on their rules, using the things of their society and their culture to speak and to minister to them. And he takes them and he says, I want to move you radically forward. I want to meet you where you are, and I want to take the way you function and operate, and I want to change it, and I want to develop it, and I want you to see that what I am trying to do amongst humanity here on earth is to like make it something better and different and wholly other. And then what happens is, is that the people of God say, yes, we're in, 
and then they fail to do it. And so then another set of laws and rules get put into place, just like in a marriage, just like in that store that tells you like no soliciting, no loitering or whatever else the crazy, ridiculous laws are that you go, why would you put a sign up that says that? Because somebody didn't know or somebody did that. Like every silly rule or regulation that you find yourself in a public space is because somebody did that thing at some point. And so they had to make a rule that just says, hey, like just so you know, for all of us to function at our best ability in the way to kind of interact and, and to uh, be what we're meant to be, you can't do that thing. And there's this story and then they do it. God gives rules and regulations. They mess up. God gives rules and regulations. They mess up. God gives rules and regulations. And it ends all the way at the end of Deuteronomy. Yeah. I always have to say it in my head. It's the fifth one, Deuteronomy. Uh, it ends in Deuteronomy. And what you see is this warning from Moses from the, to the people of God before they're about to enter into the promised land. And he says, you're about to get everything you wanted and that God promised. And guess what? Even after all of this, I know you'll never be able to follow all the laws. You're not going to do it. And what this story is telling us is it's not handing us this. That, like, the idea is not that we're supposed to be given these laws and go like, oh, this is how you follow God. Honestly, a lot of times I think that would be easier. It would be like a lot more simple if we could just, if we had a book the big giant, like, you know, imagine a, a shelf here, and we would just be like, what, what was your problem, Drew? Oh, you want, needed to know what to do about a job. Okay, well, let's see. You know, and then, like, it was like, this is what God says. But God doesn't do that with us, and he never did it with his people, ever. It was never intended that there would just be this command of laws and codes that they would consult and kind of turn to, and they would know exactly how to behave in every given moment. The laws are pointing us to the character and nature of who God is and his wisdom. And it's inviting you into, as you read this story, to read yourself and your own story and to admit and acknowledge that you are no different than the Israelites. That you are uh, prone to failure, prone to shortcomings, prone to trauma and hurt and pain. And that what God is offering is a better way. And it's the story that's being told again and again. And so you arrive to the end of these five books and you understand that what God is, or, or the story that is being told is that the people will never be able to do the thing that they are supposed to do, that there is a problem in their hearts, that no matter how many laws and rules and how clear it was and how perfect it was laid out, they would still mess up. And that no matter how many times they mess up, God is going to be faithful to complete that which he has begun and will deliver on his promises and he will not abandon his people. And so you are overwhelmed by the end of this of a gracious and kind God. A God that does not want you to have to follow 613 rules, but will do everything that he has to to help you along the way when you are unable to do the thing that he has asked you to do. That he will give as much guidance and he will be as patient and he will be as detailed and kind as he needs to be in order that you will be able to. And every time you seem to fail or not deliver on your end of the covenant, he will say, that's okay, I'll start over again. I'll meet you again. We'll redefine it. We'll work it back out. But there will always be consequences. Like a good parent, God looks at his creation and he says, I love you. I'm here to help you. But 
you have to sometimes live with the consequences of your actions and your behaviors. It would be unkind and unloving of God to intervene in such a way that we never had to experience some of that. It would be against the laws of physics and nature in some way, shape, or form if we never had to experience the result of some of the decisions we make. If I do certain things, like I'm going to experience certain results, and God would have to like go outside of the space and time and the order that he created to allow us to not experience some of those things. There are moments and times where God just takes things from me and I don't have to experience it and I don't know why. But that's some moments and sometimes, but for the most part, we experience the results of our behavior and our consequences. But God never abandons us or leaves us. And so he tells the Israelite people, you will have to do this. You will have to experience this. If you cannot do the thing that I've called you to, you will experience it. And so ultimately what we know is at the end they experience uh, exile. Fast forward several thousands of years or hundreds of years later. And they ultimately experience exile. And they get to the promised land and they're taken away from it. Come back further. What they experience in this space and in this moment is you'll see at the end of this whole story, Moses doesn't get to go into the tabernacle. Spoiler alert. This group of people that wanders through the wilderness, they don't get to go into the promised land at the end of these five books. The whole generation has to pass. But in that, God never abandons them. He never leaves them to be. He still provides, cares, and meets and dwells among them. And what he's asking them to do again and again is to follow him. And so in chapter 23, what you see in this context of all of these laws and things that he's giving, there's this rhythm and there's this pattern through 19 and 24. They go and they do a thing and then God, they say, we'll do it. They don't do it. God says, okay, let me help you along the way. He's gracious and he's kind. And what he says is, in chapter 23, the passage that we had read this morning, what's so beautiful about that, in the context of these laws and all of these commands that are being given to them, before they ever follow them and before they ever have a chance to, to like screw it all up, what he's saying is, before any of that, I will make the way for you. They get this promise that the way will be made and that the, the path will be provided and that God will be among them and with them without even knowing whether or not they will hold up their end of the covenant. And there is the little part in there where it says, if you do not listen to the angel, and I'm not even going to get into all of that, but there's this, like, the angel, and we see him earlier in Genesis, and some people are like, is this like a, a foreshadowing of Jesus? The obvious answer is always yes, because that's the Sunday school answer. Uh, but how much of a foreshadowing? Is this a Christophany, which is a really fun word of, like, is this an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament? If you want those answers and those conversations to be had, text me. We'll hang out this week, and I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll go down those roads. But there's this angel, and it's the, the name of the Lord is in him, and, and they're supposed to listen to him. And if they don't, there are, there are things that God will not be allowed to do. But this promise, this gift of the angel making this way, leading this path, taking them on this journey is given to them before they ever even have a chance to break one of the laws. And God will say, like, this is going to happen. My way will go forward. My people will make it to where they are supposed to go, whether or not they do the things that I need them to do. That is the promise. But it's in the context of that, if you want to experience it the way that you're supposed to experience it, if you want to be able to partake in it the way you're supposed to be able to partake in it, 
then there's a way of living and functioning and operating inside of the context of this relationship with God that will allow you to experience it fully and completely if you will listen and hear and obey, if you will follow. And so this is the promise we see in 23, the end of chapter 23, is that they are given a promise and a result of the covenant. So there is an agreement to the covenant, there are terms of the covenant, and there are results of the covenant. And the thing that is crazy about the God of the Hebrew people and of Yahweh is that though the terms have to be lived by, the promise and the results of the covenant will be delivered on whether or not the people hold up on their end of the bargain. And he will enter into that covenant with them even though he knows that they are going to be unable to live into their end of the bargain. It never like relieves them of the duty to live into those terms. They are still expected to do that, but like they're bookended by it. In the same way that that angel of the Lord will lead his people through the desert, carrying them when they can't do it themselves, leading them in the front and the back and making sure they're protected and safe. This is what Yahweh is inviting humanity and creation into. To live in this kind of way, to participate in life in this kind of way. And so we see these laws and these rules. And, and as you get into Levit Leviticus, you might ask yourself, like, well, why would they do that? And what he's doing is he's taking something that was, like, culturally normal oftentimes. And he's saying, like, you will not worship like that, but you will worship like this instead. One of the fun examples that I read this week was in reading about the laws and understanding them. If you've been in Leviticus, there's this really weird law that's repeated three times, and you're like, why would it be repeated three times that you are not to boil the young goat in the milk of its mother? Like, that's an odd law. And I'd never known this until now. Like, like for centuries, people were, like, making up things of trying to guess, like, why this was a law, what it meant, and there are things that they've come up with. And then it's somewhere, and I think it was in the 1800s, if my brain serves me correctly in this moment, that they found that there was an old Canaanite practice in doing archaeology in a dig. There was a Canaanite practice where they would actually worship in a way that one of the sacrifices was to take a goat, to cut it up, and to boil it in the milk of its mother. And it was an atonement or like an appeasement for one of the Canaanite gods. So then what you get in that is what you see is like God is saying like, you are not like them. You are not to worship like them. You are to worship like this, set apart, different than the culture around you. This is what it means to be holy, is to be outside of or separate from. And so as we approach the Ten Commandments and as we look at the laws and we understand what God is doing, the wild and crazy thing about the Exodus that like I cannot escape since we started studying for this like back in May, April, whatever it was when Kyle and I started talking about all of this, is like what God is doing in this moment is he is taking a group of people and he is saying, you existed here and I'm going to bring you all the way over here. I'm going to set you out here and you are going to create a new society and a new culture and a new way of being and existing. Like he takes you out of it and sets you over here and it says, and this will be a sign to the world around that I am God. And he gives them rules and regulations to be this people, to, to be different from. 
And I think a lot of times we can approach Scripture and we want it to be a, a moral or ethical guide. We want it to be this like, oh, this is the way we live. And I grew up in a way of understanding Christianity that people meant no harm by this whatsoever. But I kind of thought like, oh, well, if you just follow all the rules of Christianity, like then you kind of have a bead on being a moral or ethically good human. Like, oh, like it's like a, a concentric circle, right? Like outside was like people that kind of got it right. But in the middle were Christians. And Christians were the ones that were really, really good, morally, like, sound and ethical people. And then we start to wrestle with things and understand, like, how we're supposed to interact in society. And I think it can cause confusion for us or tension because there's things inside of us that we kind of go like, I, I don't know, is that morally or ethically wrong? And there's these things where we're following God, like, begins to, like, make us kind of question. Like, well, that doesn't seem to, like, really harm anyone. So, like, what, what's it hurt? I guess it's okay. But this is never designed to be that. It's never designed to, to be a list of rules or ways of existing that allow us to be these perfect moral or ethical beings. What it is designed to do is to take you and to take you out of where you exist and where you were and to put you over here and to say, I'm going to make something completely different and new with you. Now, hear me when I say that. Do not get lost and think that like, oh, well, that means that like we can do things that are morally and ethically kind of universal ethics like that offend people. No, 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 no. What you do here will always be kind and loving. And Jesus is going to eventually say in the Gospels that, uh, to boil down all of the commands and the laws is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, you'll fulfill the law. It's not to mean we have carte blanche to just be like, well, Jonathan said we don't have to like, really love people or be kind or morally caring or ethical or whatever it is. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we, we get confused when we think that that's what God is calling us to. And so it is right to understand and, and at times to be at tension with and to go like, oh, man, like why would God ask me of that? Why would he ask that of me? That's weird. Or like, oh, it doesn't really seem like it's that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like it matters all that much. in this kind of universal understanding of how we uh, interact with one another. But what it means and what it is saying is not that like this is the only way to be a decent human being in the world around us, which is I think the interpretation or the understanding that I gleaned from being raised in the church. Like if you want to be a good person, you have to follow the rules of Jesus. And then you meet really kind, loving, caring people and you go, wait, you voted Democrat? Like I was told that wasn't possible. Like how are you a kind person? It's, sorry, that was a bad joke, I guess. Is my upbringing. So, like, we get to this space, and then we go, like, I, like, how are you a kind person when you, when you don't do these things? And, it, and that's not what the point is. It's not to say that there's not great, kind, loving, caring, good people in the world that aren't here in this space following Jesus. Of course there are. We'd have a ton of hubris to assume otherwise. What it's saying is that that is not what God's intention ever was. God's intention was to take a group of people and to set them apart and to have them live in such a way that was completely different than the way people around them live. I will be honest with you. I think most of us in the 21st century do not live in that kind of way. We do not live in this way that we look at Jesus and we say, I understand through your death, burial, and resurrection that you are asking me to live in a way that would not be possible, that would not be able to exist, that would be totally different than the way I was living before I encountered the risen Jesus. 
in certain branches and uh, uh, denominations of Christianity, what that has looked like, and this is my, uh, my, these are my people and my heritage, they heard that and they're like, oh, so we can't have clothes with buttons and electricity and phones and we'll get around everywhere by horse and buggy. That's the Amish. Like they took this to an extreme and they said, we're going to look totally different. And sometimes I respect the Amish, man. There's a lot of problems in, in the, that way of living and in those things. But like, I, like at least they take it serious on face value that their life is supposed to look completely different. But we want to hold that intention and say that we hear Jesus, that you are to be in the world, but not of it. It's okay to, you know, and we can go down the whole other list of these rules and regulations that we start to put around what that means. But what we have to grapple with and wrestle with and understand is that God is asking us to come over here and to create a new society and a new culture. And this is what these laws are doing to exist in this new kind of way. And so do we follow all of these like verbatim? No, of course not. Because we've progressed a, a long way in a lot of this and our society is different and God is still good to meet us where our society and our culture is, to use our language, to use our knowledge, our understanding where we are. He will meet us and, like, and put himself in our society, in our culture, in our context here. And he will help us understand, but what we have to grapple with and give ourselves to is that in this, there is a wisdom and there is a trust that we have to give over to God. And as his people, we say, we will align ourselves with what you're doing. And so sometimes that looks like doing things that don't necessarily make sense or seem completely necessary. And you're right, like, I will stand in front of you as a full-time pastor of this church, and, I, and I'll go, yeah, 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 I hear you. I agree. I don't think it's necessary to be in this space every Sunday morning. You're right. Absolutely. You can be a, a God-fearing, Jesus-loving, passionate, serious about your faith Christian and come here one out of every five Sundays. Sure, fine. Totally conceded. Like, I'm, I'm not questioning that. But for some reason, what I'm recognizing and saying is that like, there's this thing where God is saying, but if you'll trust me and you'll do this, and God asks us to gather and to, and to come back again and again and to be around people and to submit yourselves to one another and to give up of your own rights and what you think is the best way to spend your weekend and to spend it in a way and, and orient your time and your structure and your rhythms and your routines in a different kind of way to give yourself over to different practices that, like, yeah, sure, you don't need them. But for some reason, God is saying, if you do this, your life and your experience and what you do will be different than the world around you. And you will function and you will exist in a kind of way that allows a, uh, like a traffic and a conduit between you and what is the divine and the good. And heaven and earth will overlap in a different kind of way in you as you are a holy temple a priesthood, and you will exist in this way that allows you to have peace, that allows you to have joy, that allows you to have understanding, even in the moments of terrible sadness. And you feel all those emotions, and, and it's not that you just get to ignore it or that it doesn't happen to you or that you are somehow above it because you follow these rules. That's not what the Bible is saying. It is saying that you will have a trust and an ability and a relationship with God that allows you to exist in a different kind of way because you are different. You are marked and you are set apart. And that's what the laws are asking, to live and exist in a different kind of way. Ultimately, we, we see this and it's saying that we are to follow God where he goes. 
Later in Exodus, you'll see that what is being uh, teased out is this angel of the Lord and the, the smoke and the fire, and we'll get into some of this. But like when the smoke sits over the tabernacle as it comes, the tent of meeting, they know they're supposed to stay. And when the, when the fire moves and the smoke moves, they know that they're supposed to move. The people are told to follow God where God would go, whether it makes sense or not, whether, whether they always understand it, whether that's what they want to do or not. They're to follow and to give themselves. Ultimately, Jesus is going to come in the New Testament, and he's going to say that you are to follow me, for he is the way, the truth, and the light. We talked about it last week, Matthew 16. He's going to tell you to pick up your cross and follow him if you want life. And we trust and believe that we can give ourselves and follow Jesus completely and fully and that he is as beautiful and as wise and caring and who he says he is because we believe that ultimately Jesus came knowing that we would never be able to do all that we could do, that we would continually fail and he will say, I will come, I will enter into that story and I will fulfill it for you. I will be the complete fulfillment of that so that you will always have this access, you will always have this way. But he still asks that we follow him. It's no longer the angel of the Lord, but we're asked to follow Jesus and to live in such a way that allows justice to reign and mercy to be supreme and love to be the thing that defines and knows us. And so that's what we're asked, is to follow Jesus and to trust and to live into this other way of being and existing that doesn't always make sense, that seems at odds sometimes with what is like okay or normal or natural and say, I am giving myself to you in this kind of way. That I will trust that what you're asking of me is good and better than my wisdom because I see the pattern, I see the story that is being told that my failures will inevitably get into the way. But God, you are more beautiful and more kind and more true than anything I could ever fathom or understand. And so I will trust that your wisdom is right and it's good because I've experienced your mercy and your grace. And so that's what we celebrate every Sunday in communion, is this trusting and this knowing, this following. And so as the band comes up, as we do uh, every Sunday here at Mosaic, we come to the table, we receive the elements, the bread and the cup. We come and we know that what we're coming and receiving is God's goodness and his mercy, his grace and his kindness, his invitation to us again and again to enter back into this relationship this story that he is telling in humanity. And this is the way in which we believe that this happens again and again. This is the way in which we trust that God's beauty, his grace, is grander, is bigger than us because we know that ultimately this is the thing. And we receive his provision, we receive his forgiveness in these moments. And we follow. We come we take up uh, what we think is right and good. This is more true and more good and more real than anything we could conjure up or imagine on our own. And so that's the invitation this morning. As the band plays, come, take a piece of the bread. There's gluten-free on this side if you need that. Take the cup, hold on to those elements, and go back to your seats and continue to reflect and meditate on these truths. And after that song's over, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the receiving of one body and one cup together as a community. So this morning, come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.